Hello and welcome to Season 4, Episode 3 of Bad Gaze, a podcast about evil and complicated queers in history. I'm Ben Miller, a writer, researcher, and member of the board of the Schwules Museum in Berlin. And I'm Hugh Lemmy, a writer and author. Last week, we talked about Liberace, a spangly pianist who managed to hide the open secret of his homosexuality for his middle-aged, middle-class fans. Who are we going to talk about this week, Hugh? Well, just before I start this week, I'd like to give a, a, a brief content warning, because there is some discussion of child sexual abuse in the early parts of this story. So um, uh, please bear that in mind before you listen on. This is a story of sex, death, and political malfeasance. It has everything you've come to expect from a bad gay story about the English upper classes. Psychosexual repression, violence, class prejudice, hypocrisy, and plenty of people named things like Rupert, Oberon, and Emmeline. But as ridiculous and kinky as the fruity rulers of Britain are, the story is even darker than that. This story is also about the way the law is impervious to the informal networks of power in the British establishment, and how homosexuality was subject to a series of double standards, tolerated in the powerful but suppressed in the ordinary citizen, practiced in private and denied in public. It goes some way to demonstrating the truly incredible class solidarity that exists uh, and operates in the UK, and how morality and law are at best tools for maintaining power from which the established establishment regard themselves as exempt. You might have heard the name of our subject before, often as part of a light-hearted joke, and yet hopefully in this episode we'll go some way to uncovering the story as it really is, a remarkable example of the brutality and cheapness of life at the heart of the political system. Today we're discussing the life of a man whose sexuality stole his chance at power, the MP and leader of the Liberal Party, the Right Honourable Jeremy Thorpe. One of the most interesting aspects in Thorpe's story is how it straddles um, these two different social models around homosexuality in England. In the first, homosexuality is a sort of tolerated deviance within the ruling class, and cultured as part of school and academic life, that is often recognised within social circles but is, is publicly hidden. It's okay for them to do it, but for the middle class, it still carries a huge social stigma. And in the working classes, it's largely suppressed by law. So you still have this very Victorian attitude where shame and law combine to create this social silence, but neither really apply to the very rich or powerful. The second model is that's emerging at the time of Thorpe being at the height of his power, where an independent, politically active and openly gay subculture is emerging in bigger cities, establishing something more like the gay scene we know today. Thorpe's life becomes the battlefield on which these two worlds clash, and the result was spectacular. But let's start, as I say at the beginning. Thorpe's story, like everyone in the English ruling class, begins with his genealogy, and we're about to encounter many of the running tropes of this podcast. Thorpe's father and his maternal grandfather were both conservative MPs. His grandfather was called Sir John Norton Griffiths. Uh, a baronet of such intense colonialist fervour that he was known as Hellfire and Empire Jack. In his lifetime, he served as a policeman in South Africa, a gold mine manager, a railway baron, a Tory MP for 14 years, and a major in the Second King Edward's Horse, a colonial cavalry regiment that he raised at his own expense and with which he personally destroyed 70 oil refineries and burned uh, 800,000 tonnes of crude oil. I don't think you'd find a CV more representative of the acquisitive barbarity of the British Empire. Yeah, I was going to say that uh, usually they uh, they don't burn down their own sort of profit-making assets. That's just sort of a true 
a true believer of a kind of terrifying well this is the first world war you know i I think it's like an attempt to stop them falling into the the hands of the hun as they would have said so he died in uh, 1930 shooting himself in the head in a rowing boat just offshore um, from alexandria in egypt following the failure of his engineering project on the Aswad's low dam on his father's side uh, things aren't much better Um, he came from anglo-irish stock who took great pride in being descended from cromwell's troops and many of whom served as sheriffs or policemen in Colonial Ireland. But Thorpe's upbringing was far from the brutal frontiers of empire. He was born in 1929 in South Kensington, one of the poshest parts of London, and his early life revolved around his violin lessons, his nannies, and the social life his parents maintained amongst the highest echelons of the British political elite. His godmother was Megan Lloyd George, Wales's first female MP, and the daughter of the Liberal Prime Minister, David Lloyd George. Lloyd George was also a visitor to the family home, and he soon became the young Jeremy, Jeremy's political hero. His education was delayed by the outbreak of World War II, but on returning to England from his evacuation to America, he was enrolled at Eton. We've mentioned Eton before, I think. For, the, for those who are unfamiliar, it's the elite public school in England, and public school in England confusingly means private school, as you'd say, in America. Um, and it's replete with the sort of traditions that you'd find um, that you also find at Oxford and Cambridge and in Parliament as well. And I think it's designed like that. It's a a culture of um, ritual and performance, and even the arch- and architecture of it as well. It's designed to exclude those who are not raised within those traditions. There's a popular expression uh, attributed to Wellington, the British Prime Minister and heroic general, who you might remember also from the episode on Castlereagh, where he said, "Quote: The Battle of Waterloo was won on the playing fields of Eton." meaning that the, the power of the British Empire was fostered within its private educational system. And maybe also its downfall to some extent, if you factor in the kind of insular thinking and uh, low level of perspective on world affairs that you get if everything in your life has been handed to you in this, in this crazy way. Yeah, it's about sort of retaining um, economic and class power within this very small class. It's not about efficiency particularly. But there's still, yeah, there's, there's, there's something to what he says in that, because, I mean, even to this day, um, public schools still maintain, you know, officer cadet corps that feed into the officer class of the army. And the stranglehold of private schools is still maintained in politics, the media, civil service, etc. Um, Eton has educated no less than 20 British prime ministers like from one school, including the current one, Boris Johnson, and the last but one, David Cameron. Well, they did a great job in both of them, so. <laughs> yeah. So this is, um, this, is, this is maybe a contentious issue, but I think it's fair to say that homosexual behaviour was ubiquitous within the public school system. And it was also institutionalised to an extent in traditions such as fagging. Yes, fagging, which was essentially the fagging? practice of se- fagging. Yeah, the senior, the senior boys would select junior boys who would then act as their sort of personal servants and they were called fags. Um, in the words of the film critic Derek Malcolm, he said, quote, At Eton, if you were a fag master, you chose the prettiest fag from among the lower boys. You'd just like to have a pretty fag. I suppose it was a substitute for girls. The funny thing was, if you shagged one of the maids, you were instantly expelled. But if you had anything to do with boys, you got a severe ticking off. And you hoped that by the end of your career at Eton, you didn't turn out to be gay. End quote. Um, I'm sorry. So, that sounds like the rules of 
A sex party in Berlin, not like the way that a nation remakes its whirling class. The fag master makes the prettiest fag. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's uh, it's ostensibly like consensual sex, and also obviously sexual abuse weren't officially part of that system. Like it, it was, people were expelled for it, but obviously the possibility for it was built in. You know, it was. Um, it, it, it's. 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 Um, it's incompetence, neglect on a on a huge scale to allow that system to exist, I guess. But it's so it's built in um, to the system. But are people expelled for having encounter sexual encounters with their fags, or are they just expelled for having sexual encounters with the maids? Well, he was saying that it was just with the maids. There are. Um, from researching other people, there's, there's, there's instance of it, but you know, it's, um, it's an informal system and especially in the past, uh, actually I think it's probably ended in a lot of schools, but in the past it was clearly something that was a, a blind eye was turned to. And also, I mean, sexual abuse in public schools was rife anyway from staff members. So, um, but yeah, I mean, you can see here then that like alongside the sort of inevitable, um, sort of mutual teenager crushes and romance, the whole system absolutely facilitated abuse either by design or neglect. And if you add to that again, the sort of child abuse of by adults, which is an inherent danger in residential situations that don't have these sort of safeguards. Um, you can imagine what a terrifying and dangerous place that British public schools were for sometimes like very, very young boys who were sent there. Indeed, um, according to Thorpe's biographer, Michael Block, Thorpe's great-grandfather's cousin was a man named Oscar Browning, who was a, a hugely renowned, a respected housemaster at Eton in the Victorian era, who was probably fired for becoming, in Block's words, quote, too intimate with some of his charges. The reason I mentioned Thorpe's education is twofold. Firstly, to illustrate this sort of semi-legitimized understanding of homosexuality within the upper, upper classes, as long as it was bounded by certain social codes, and secondly, because Thorpe's own conduct at school was so remarkable and displayed many of the traits that would go on to shape his political life. Like many, if not most of the boys at Eton, um, Thorpe had his own fair share of same-sex crushes, but he wasn't noted as a particularly voracious homosexual, as it were, um, with the exception of an incident in the toilets where he forced himself on a younger student who fought him off. Um, and in response to this assault, rumours started spreading throughout the school, to which Jeremy forcefully responded by approaching anybody spreading it and declaring quote i know what you're saying about me and it's not true in the words of um, michael block again it was a technique of stout denial which he would employ throughout his life so thorpe was remembered by his schoolmates as a, a very sort of idiosyncratic student he was something of a rebel prone to breaking plenty of the customs of the school um, such as uh, not visiting sick friends who are in the infirmary which was for some reason taboo, I guess, showing any sort of care or affection, um, befriending shunned students and having cross-house friendships. He developed a distinct sense of style as well, delivering his violin recitals with a red handkerchief in his breast pocket. In fact, he was quite an accomplished violin player and for a while he considered going professional. He displayed a number of other affectations and characteristics that might be recognisable to, shall we say, our more musical listeners. Um, he had an early fascination of Chinese ceramics, delivering a lecture on Tang Dynasty arts to the school's archaeological society. 
he avoided sports wherever possible. He was extremely close to his mother, Ursula, herself an eccentric force of nature who would turn up multiple times a week to his school, sometimes wearing her monocle to oversee his violin practice. His father died from a stroke after being caught up in a bombing raid in London in a war, but when but then Thorpe returned to Eton and he remained something of a, of a rebel, quitting the school's officer training corps when it ceased to be compulsory, which was a, a very daring act at the time, just after the Second World War. But despite his rebelliousness, he was, he was also marked by an acquiescence towards the powerful, and he was distrusted by his schoolmates, who called him Oily Thorpe. Um, even at this age, he was discussing his ambitions of becoming the Prime Minister, which might seem like a preposterous fantasy from a schoolboy to us, but let's not forget that the privilege that Eton conveys. You know, another another schoolboy who spent his Eton years telling people he was going to be prime minister is in fact the prime minister today. But that's not to say that Jeremy wasn't a fantasist. He would also tell his friends of his ambition to marry the Queen's sister, Princess Margaret. Anyone who knows anything about Princess Margaret will know that's pretty much the most homosexual, heterosexual crush you can possibly nurse, short of maybe wanting to become Mr. Judy Garland. <laughs> he wanted to marry Princess Margaret? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The old story is that Princess Margaret was talking to somebody, some, I think this is a Truman Capote story, is Princess Margaret having a conversation with some other, you know, renowned fag hag, and suddenly she said, well, I just hate poofs, and the person said back to her, well, then I fear, my dear, you're going to have a very lonely old age. He then managed to evade completing his military service by faking a series of seizures during training, which was something he actually then bragged about to his fellow conscripts. And then in 1948, he went to Trinity College, Oxford to study law. And you can always, I mean, you can, you can see already this pipeline of privilege that he's got himself on, you know, like Oxford is an almost obligatory stepping stone to becoming prime minister. Um, the last university prime minister, the last university educated prime minister to not attend Oxford was Gordon Brown, uh, which is what, 2010. And the last before him was Neville Chamberlain. To put it in context, he was at college, he was still at college the year Hitler was born. So I cannot stress enough how like absolutely unreformed the British class system remains. You know, like there were people who, who, who became prime minister who didn't go to Oxford, but they weren't university educated at all. So everyone who's become prime minister between, um, Neville Chamberlain and Gordon Brown, the entire 20th century who went to university, they all went to Oxford. Um, oh and this God. is, you know, these supposedly democratic institutions are still, are still inextricably tied up with this form of institutional power. So at Oxford, he studied law, but he also threw himself into the political and social aspects of, of the university, um, which was, uh, like we said, like a sort of finishing school for prime ministers, isn't it? Thorpe, uh, following in the footsteps of his hero Lloyd George, was already a committed liberal. By the end of his first term, he was on the club's committee, the Liberal Club's committee, and um, within a year of that, he was the president of the club. He became president of the Oxford University Law Society, and then he decided to go for the prize, the prestigious role of the president of the Oxford Union, a debating society that is um, still very high profile in British society. Past presidents of the union include William Hague, Boris Johnson, Michael Gove, Benazir Bhutto, Michael Foote, Tony Benn, Tariq Ali. So you can see it's definitely a, a first foot into a political career on the left and the right in the UK. And he, um, he stood against uh, a man called William Rees Mogg, who later became editor of the Times and a baron who sat in the House of Lords. 
as well as becoming the father of our very own Jacob Rees-Mogg, and, um, and against another candidate who is still in the House of Lords, one Dick Tavern. Dick Tavern? <laughs> Did Dick Tavern ever go to Cecil Rhodes' enormous hole? <laughs> the big hole, yeah. Have you ever taken a drink at the Dick Tavern? Well, um, not since the pandemic anyway. started, but... <laughs> he, um, he won, um, but his victory, uh, he, in his victory, he, he gained a reputation for being cutthroat and unscrupulous. He knew that campaigning was prohibited, so he non- but he nonetheless got his friends to campaign, but not for him, for his opponents knowing that if he lost, he could get the result overturned because they broke the rules. One of his Oxford contemporaries, the journalist and broadcaster, Sir Robin Day, said anyone who saw Thorpe's behaviour would know they could never trust him again. Um, But who cares if you win? He turned 21 while at Oxford, and on his birthday, he vowed to resurrect the Thorpe barony, which had been dead for centuries. The fact that he wasn't actually related to anyone in the Thorpe barony didn't seem to worry him. And uh, he also put himself forward to be on the Liberal Party's list of potential parliamentary candidates. Um, so here at university, we see Thorpe as he would be defined you know, by his, power, his, his desire for power, respect, um, his willingness to lie, cheat and, and fantasise to achieve it. The Liberals continued their disintegration during the 1951 general election, winning just six seats, down three from the election of the year before. Despite losing the popular vote, the Conservatives, under their wartime leader Winston Churchill, won more seats, and so they formed a government, ousting the Labour leader and the former Prime Minister Clement Attlee. The Liberals won just 2.5% of the vote. And remember, this is less than 30 years since they were in power in in a coalition, but with a Liberal as Prime Minister, Lloyd George. So this is perhaps a a paradox for Thorpe, that despite this clear ambition for power, he, he joined a party that appeared to be in terminal decline. It seemed like he joined that party out of uh, political conviction, um, or would someone of his kind of elitist bent have simply been unwelcome in the sort of left-leaning post-war Labour Party? Or no, absolutely not. Because, for example, um, Tony Benn, who was also um, the president of the Oxford Union, was was at this time um, Viscount. What was he? Viscount. He was Lord. Viscount Stansgate, you know, he was a, he 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 had to resign as a member of the House of Lords and actually change the law in order to become uh, a Labour a Labour MP and a left Labour MP. So no, there's absolutely nothing. He would have been an ideal Labour MP. Um, he would be an ideal Conservative MP. They're all the fucking same. Well, yeah, they're all the fucking same. But my the, the question is: Is there other than it seems like there's some genuine convict genuine conviction uh, rather towards the philosophy of liberalism, whatever Yeah, yeah, is. yeah, I think so. Like, I think he could have chosen any of the parties. He probably would have done very well in the Conservative Party, better than in the Labour Party. But I think he chose the Liberals out of a genuine conviction and out of this maybe childhood legacy of his relationship with, um, with the Lloyd George family. Mm-hmm. Um, and he showed, like, considerable commitment to the, 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 the drudge work of the party, um, especially in the southwest of England in the counties of Devon and Cornwall, which were traditionally Labour strongholds where he'd supported the campaigns of the Liberal candidate, um, get ready for this name, Ben, Sir Dinglefoot. Sir Dinglefoot? Yeah. Also a nice <laughs> shout-out to, uh, shout to uh, Devon, where yeah. a friend of the show, my boyfriend, currently lives. For better of um, words. Has he ever dingled his foot in the Dick Tavern? 
You know, that's not something I'm prepared to reveal on his behalf. <laughs> so um, Dinglefoot, you will not be surprised to learn, was also a former president of the Oxford Union himself. And he was, uh, despite being a liberal, he was a brother of the future Labour leader, Michael Foot. So all very cosy at the top of the British class system. Um, and you don't even need to be a Tory. He was, uh, Thorpe was chosen as the liberal candidate for North Devon in 1952, inheriting a seat where, despite it being a liberal heartland, the party had polled in third place with just 20% of the vote. He stood in the 1955 general election constituency and um, he did cut the Tory majority in half and pushed the Liberals back into second place. But without a seat in Parliament, he still needed an income. Uh, as well as being a barrister, um, a barrister at law, he became a broadcaster, appearing on ITV in a number of shows, including as a sort of foreign correspondent. And this gave him a modicum of fame. Um, and he was noted for his charisma, which would surely stand him well in politics. And then in 1959, he managed to snatch the seat of North Devon from the Tories by just a few hundred votes, and his career as a politician was properly launched. And he was noted as a, a fine constituency MP. He saved the Barnstable to Exeter railway line from, being, um, from, from falling victim to the famous beaching cuts of train lines in the UK, for example. I have ridden on that train line, so I'm grateful yeah. to him for saving it. And he was a devout liberal, like he was ideologically liberal on most issues. He was pro-Europe. Uh, anti-capital punishment. Uh, he also concentrated a lot on human rights and foreign affairs, um, opposing the apartheid regime in South Africa, shouting back to the Cecil Rhodes episode a couple of weeks ago. And he also sounded the alarm early about Rhodesia's unilateral declaration of independence and then the racist states that it was to sort of bring into existence, which is a very interesting story of um, the white minority farmers, uh, farming community there sort of breaking away from the British Empire and refusing this process of um, decolonialization that was happening in many African states at the time. Indeed, he actually called for the, uh, the bombing of the fuel supply lines into Rhodesia, something that earned him the nickname amongst Tory MPs as Bomber Thorpe. They sound charming as always. Yeah. But you'll notice throughout this uh, uh, the absence of any real discussion about his relationships. He posed himself as a kind of bachelor figure. He, he was like too devoted to his work to maintain a relationship. But in reality, he was, of course, a man whose sexual relationships with men, you know, it would not only be career destroying, but it was, it was illegal at the time. Sex between men was, was only partially decriminalized in 1967 in the UK. And a number of politicians had seen their careers and public reputation destroyed by their exposure as homosexuals. Thorpe, nonetheless, continued to engage in a sex life that, that really, it seems so risky that you can't help but suspect that like endangerment was maybe part of the thrill. Um, if, if I was an ambitious young homosexual MP in a country where homosexuality was a criminal offence, I would just not send love letters to my lovers on House of Commons headed notepaper. Seems like a bad idea. But maybe that, that's his kink. You know, people um, sometimes really get off on the idea of being caught. Yeah. That's true, yeah. And some people are clumsy and or, or unthinking, you know. I mean, I, I mean, you get the impression through reading his biography that he was, like, extremely horny and he really allowed his better judgment to be overridden a number of times by, by that. Um, and he shared, uh, Thorpe shared the, the sort of predilection of many of his class peers for what's called rough trade, you know, like working class youth who he would very daringly introduce to his social circles as young men that he was sort of helping out. Um, he had a thing for twinks and his sexual style could probably best be described as a, a sort of dom top. Like he was very aggressive and sometimes violent in bed. He was a member of 
underground coteries of gay men that were based in private members clubs in, in London, such as the Reform Club and the National Liberal Club, where young staff members were often, quote unquote, available after work. And he frequented both theatre bars and soldiers pubs after hours where young men could be picked up in return for a small gift, shall we say. So he was basically into like hookup culture and nothing really more significant than that, with two exceptions. I mean, he didn't restrict his lovers, his lovers just to those from a lower class position. In fact, those, those two significant relationships they had in the 1950s were with people drawn from very similar backgrounds. Um, there's some really good names coming up again. So firstly, he had an ongoing relationship with a young man called um, Henry Patrick Mountjoy Spalding Upton, Upton, the future Viscount Templeton, who was a, a playboy 12 years his senior, who we, we can pretty safely say was a complete arsehole. Um, Upton had been out in India working in schools with two friends, but he was forced to come home following what, his, um, what Thorpe's biogra- biographer Michael Block calls abusing his position of being a teacher, a P teacher. And he went to the young Thorpe, who at this point was, what, 20, 21, who he'd met a few years earlier at a party, and yeah, he was still at Oxford at this time. And Thorpe just couldn't resist getting involved with someone who was both supposedly handsome, although I've seen a photo and I don't see it, and also an aristocrat. They became lovers, and Jeremy was said to be influenced by Upton's sort of... Um, Ubermenschian philosophy, his Nietzschean philosophy of satiating your desires at the expense of others, and that the, the laws and rules don't apply to the great men of the world. Which is maybe a, a shift from genuinely having whatever these liberal convictions were, or, I mean, do you read it as, a, as that kind of a shift, or as a kind of a way of thinking that formed a kind of sexy escape? Like you sort of, you sort of vanish into thinking this way or sort of put on this kind of drag and it's a way of feeling cool and powerful and sexy for 10 minutes and then you sort of stop. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's a sex, sexual thing. And I think he, I think it's, um, I think he, his politics was quite patrician in a certain way that he did, did, he did well by the, the lower classes. They had these liberal values towards them, but he had this private life within the aristocracy that he sort of dreamed of. Um, where these rules didn't apply. So, yeah, so this guy comes to uh, Henry Patrick Mountjoy Spalding Upton, the future Viscount Templeton, comes to him to ask for help, and um, they become lovers. And, uh, yeah, and so Jeremy sort of successfully manages to negotiate a, a considerable sum of money from Upton's father in order that Henry could sort of emigrate to Australia and get out of trouble, which he did. But then he was soon arrested again in Australia for sexually abusing teenage boys. He was released from prison in 1954 and Thorpe flew to meet him in Mumbai, India, having negotiated a further settlement worth about half a million pounds in today's money. And they stayed together in the bridal suite of the extremely luxurious Taj Mahal Hotel. He then made Thorpe the benefactor of his will. And uh, he even came to stay with Thorpe's mother, the famous Ursula, at her home in England. But he'd soon squandered away the money and he was back in trouble with the police, having astonishingly been given a job at a school. And, um, you know, he was rapidly becoming a liability for, for Thorpe in his political career. And so they fell out. And um, his creditors were then bombarding Thorpe's legal chambers and Upton wrote, Thor- wrote Thorpe out of his will. But then in 1957, Upton hired a motorboat on the south coast, which later ran aground with nobody on it and he was never seen again. 
in the 19, late 1950s, Thorpe then had another affair with a guy called David Carrot, who was an art dealer, an art historian, and um, a sworn enemy of the late Brian Sewell. I don't know if you know him, but a, a fantastically catty popular art historian in the UK. Thorpe rat- uh, rapidly became infatuated with this, this very intelligent, egotistical, charming young young bottom, I guess. But, um, but Carrot very quickly tired of Thorpe. And when Thorpe um, ended up like one, late one night in 1960 in tears beneath Carrot's window, threatening suicide if he didn't take him back, Carrot threatened to call the police and Thorpe eventually relented. And then interestingly, later, Carrot would later claim that Upton's disappearance may not have been an accident, saying that Thorpe had actually defrauded him of a significant sum of money while taking care of his financial dealings, and that Thorpe, uh, Upton was threatening to expose Thorpe, who was by then an MP, as a homosexual. Um, and Carrot suggests that Thorpe actually arranged for some young working class men to accompany Upton on his rented boat and while he was out at sea to sort of make the problem disappear, and that he later confessed that to Carrot. And that accusation was never proven, but it's certainly not the sort of accusation that comes from an amicable breakup. And as we'll see later on, maybe, I don't know. So, so the year 1960... There's reason to believe that that's not just entirely bullshit? Perhaps we'll say like it's not necessarily out of character. Oh. Um, the year 1960 was to prove a turning point for Thorpe. Um, through his school friend from Eton, Anthony Armstrong Jones, he actually was managing to start to move in the same circles as Princess Margaret, although he hadn't actually yet plucked up the courage to speak to her. But fellow viewers of The Crown will know what is coming, the Netflix series The Crown, which I love. Um, the, the very charming um, and bisexual Anthony Armstrong Jones would himself propose to the princess, which she accepted. And Thorpe was absolutely furious. His plan of a royal marriage was ruined. And to his friends, this was like, obviously, almost a joke, but it, it sort of shows the depth of his delusions regarding his ambition. And in fact, he was briefly considered as a possible best man for Armstrong Jones, a plot which was swiftly scotched when MI5 vetted Thorpe by contacting the chief constable of Devon, whose name was, and I shit you not, Colonel Ranulph Streaky Bacon. Colonel Ranulph Streaky Bacon? Yeah, Streaky is a nickname, but okay. Colonel, Ranulph, Colonel Ranulph Bacon is, is good enough for a, for a Chief Constable. So, uh, Chief Constable Bacon uh, <laughs> Chief responded... Chief Constable Bacon! <laughs> <laughs> um, he responded that it was common knowledge amongst his constituents that Thorpe was homosexual. Actually, people did know and didn't care that much in Devon. Certainly not enough to stop him being elected. And on hearing about the news of his engagement of Armstrong Jones and uh, the beautiful princess, he wrote, uh, he wrote to a friend, quote, What a pity about Her Royal Highness. I rather hope to marry the one and sedu- seduce the other. I.e., he wanted to marry Margaret and fuck Anthony Armstrong Jones. Um, and uh, <laughs> of course, this being Jeremy Thorpe, he actually wrote this letter on the House of Commons postcard. He played fuck, Mary kill with the royal family on a House <laughs> of Commons postcard? So that postcard was sent to a friend of his, uh, a young man called uh, Brecht van der Vater, uh, which is also a pseudonym. Van der Vater lived in Oxfordshire, where he managed some stables, and he lived with a young quote-unquote assistant, another personal secretary, we might say, uh, whom he employed for bed, board, and sexual favours, who was a 20-year-old boy, man called Norman Joseph, 
Joseph, Norman, Norman Joseph, J-O-S-I-F-F-E. Um, and I think I'm right in suggesting that Vantaveta and Thorpe were also lovers, but if that was the case, it, it wasn't for long because he went to visit him. Um, and the moment that Jeremy set his eyes on the young Norman, he was smitten. And before he left after his stay, he pressed his House of Commons business card into, uh, into Norman's hand, saying that if he ever had a problem with his boss, to let him know. A few months later, Joseph did have a problem with the boss who he felt was bullying him. So he packed his bag to leave and on a spur of a moment, added to his suitcase over 30 letters between Vantaveta and Jeremy Thorpe, which were probably of a sexual nature. Interesting, salacious nature. nature. Yeah. Um, but crucially, he left without his national insurance card, which is um, a card that's necessary in the UK to get employment or to claim benefits. The rest of 1961 was a very bad year for him as he suffered a nervous breakdown and was hospitalised. And so in early November, with no money and no national insurance card, he discharged himself from psychiatric care and made his way to the House of Commons with Thorpe's card in hand to ask for help. So faced with a, a distru- distressed, vulnerable young man in need, coming to him penniless straight from psychiatric care, Jeremy Thorpe did exactly what you'd think Jeremy Thorpe would do. He drove Norman to his mother's house in Oxted in Surrey, where Jeremy was living at the time, because, of course, Jeremy, Norman and Ursula had dinner together. And Ben, you will die when you find out what Ursula's Oxted house was called. Stonewalls. Stonewalls! (laughs) (laughs) I bet there was a drag queen who worked behind the bar at the Stonewall named Ursula Thorpe. (laughs) With a monocle. Absolutely all the better to see you with, my dear. Yeah. That night, Thorpe entered Norman's room as he was preparing for bed and wondered whether Norman would like something to read. He handed him a thin paperback. The book was Giovanni's room. Oh. And what a, what a, a classic move. Oh, um, and then he went, he went down... when I'm 16? What? Yeah. Um, he went downstairs and chatted more with his mother. And then once she'd gone to bed, he re-entered Norman's room with a towel and a tube of Vaseline. He made Norman lie in a towel, and then he fucked him. When Norman began to make a noise, Thorpe allegedly pointed at the wall and hissed at him, Mother's room. Oh. <sighs> Norman Bates. Yeah, poor, poor Norman. God. Um, well, no, no, I mean, poor Norman here, yeah. but then also Norman Bates. Oh, yeah, my right. God. Oh. Jeremy and Norman then began an affair. Thorpe called his young lover Bunnies and, um, and spent considerable time and effort to try and ensure that he was taken care of, uh, finding him a, a place to stay and to work, and even taking out adverts for him in Country Life magazine to try and find him a job. And when Norman Joseph expressed a desire to learn dressage in France, which is, you know, like dancing horses, Jeremy sent him a note that said, quote, Bunnies can and will go to France. But despite this affection, the help and the sex, the relationship was still actually reasonably informal. Um, Joseph travelled from job to job, sometimes lasting only a few days. And um, at other times, he'd stay in a place for a while, such as Northern Ireland, where he was working with horses. Um, and he, Norman suffered from uh, mental health problems. But at the same time, um, he was a difficult person to be friends with, by all accounts. And in 1962, feeling cut out by Thorpe, he told a friend he was considering killing himself, killing Thorpe and then himself. His friend reported a threat to the police and it was noted on Thorpe's um, very large MI5 file, the Secret Service. 
this, but no further action was undertaken. And they continued to see each other, and in 1963, Thorpe used his influence to secure Norman a job in Switzerland. Uh, but as soon as he arrived, he hated it, and he came straight back the next day. But in the rush, he forgot to grab his suitcase, which contained all his compromising letters from Thorpe, both to him and to his former employer. Why are all these people just making this stoop? How do they, they manage to all not get arrested at a time when sodomy yeah. is illegal, and yet they're making the stupidest mistakes? Yeah. And by 1965, five years after they met, Joseph was living in Dublin. The relationship with Thorpe had essentially run its course, but Norman felt very hard done by, and he continued to pester Jeremy about his lost luggage and also his missing national insurance card, which Thorpe had in his keeping as he had legally been Norman's employer. And getting up, getting nowhere with this, he turned up the heat and he wrote a letter to Ursula. It read, quote, For the last five years, as you probably know, Jeremy and I have had a homosexual relationship. To go into it too deeply will not help either, either of us. When I came down to Stonewalls, that was when I first met him. Though he told you something about the TV program in Malta, this was all not true. Not so true. What remains is the fact that through my meeting with Jeremy that day, I gave birth to this vice that lies latent in every man. End quote. He then said that he wanted his national insurance card back, but that Jeremy wasn't returning it, and so could Ursula lend him 30 quid. He ended by saying, quote, I hate asking you because I know it causes it may cause friction, and, and I know how close both you both are. This is really why I'm writing to you. Jeremy owes me nothing. Possibly I owe him a lot, although I feel we balance out. Now, instead of a cast-off friend, I appeal to his finer feelings as a man to help me who is in real need. I promise I shall repay every penny as soon as I'm on my feet. Believe me, I mean this. Can you understand any of this, Mrs. Thorpe? I'm so sorry. Please believe me. I'm desperate for help. End quote. And it's an interesting letter because it, it could be read as blackmail, but also it, it could be read as a sort of a sincere ex who, who needed to help and support. But Ursula handed a letter to Jeremy, and for him, uh, involving his mother was a step too far. And so at this point, he enlisted the help of his right-hand man, the Liberal MP for Bodmin, which is in Cornwall, right next to Devon, uh, a man called Peter Bessel MP. Bessel was a sympathetic character for Thorpe, who thought wrongly that they, they shared their bisexuality in common, although they were at different ends of the Kinsey scale. He told Bessel that he was going to write a legal demand to Yosef to stop, but then Bessel reminded him of the Oscar Wilde trial, i.e. that bringing the law into matters of reputation was an extremely risky business for a homosexual while it was still legal. Better to handle it informally. He was something of a fixer for Thorpe, and so he travelled to Dublin to sort the issue, promising Norman his card and his suitcase, but also warning him that it was tempting fate to mess with a political figure. The suitcase was found, but before it could be returned to Joseph, Thorpe removed the incriminating letters. It seemed that at this point the problem was solved. For two years, Norman lay low in Ireland, taking modelling jobs, and he changed his name to Norman Scott, which is how I'll refer to him from now on. Um, meanwhile, Thorpe's star was in the ascendancy. Following a moderately successful election in 1966, where they gained three seats, the Liberal leader, Joe Grimmond, stood down, and Thorpe was elected party leader. It was by no means plain sailing. The youth wing of the party was far to the left of the party in general, ad advocating for a position that is probably closer to that of um, momentum in the Labour Party today. They demanded workers' control of industry, um, that the UK leave, leave NATO and stuff like that. And um, he struggled to rein them in when, when sort of faced with an electorate that seemed to be tipping rightwards. 
and Norman Scott was starting to write again, asking for favours, including a new passport under his new name, so that he could start a new life in the United States. Bessel cut him a deal with the retainer, but Scott stayed in Ireland modelling. In April 1968, uh, Thorpe got engaged to a woman called Caroline Allpass, and they were married a few months later, and they honeymooned on the Italian island of Elba, which was actually where Napoleon was first exiled uh, following his forced abdication. And for some reason, the young liberals um, in his party decided that this was the moment for their coup. And um, allied with some disaffected MPs, they struck. But obviously trying to depose a man from his leadership while he's on honeymoon is seen as very bad form. And as a result, he won the ensuing challenge. In November that year, Scott was back, his retainer having ended. This was the last draw for Thorpe, who began plotting. He called Peter Bessel and another friend, David Holmes, to his office. Holmes was uh, the assistant treasurer of the Liberals, and he'd also been a lover of Thorpe's, um, as well as best man at his wedding. Quote, We've got to get rid of him, he told the men. It's no worse than shooting a sick dog. Thorpe had clearly been musing on the idea of murder, um, even suggesting that if he were killed in Cornwall, he could be disposed of down an abandoned tin mine. And the other men didn't really know what to think. So they humoured him, but Thorpe was insistent, and he rose, uh, raised the idea again in a meeting with the two men in early 1969. But later that year, to everyone's surprise, Scott himself married, and the plotters assumed that the threat was over. Later, Holmes would suggest that Bessel and himself were merely humouring Thorpe in order to prevent him from finding a, an actual paid killer and getting into more trouble. But things weren't going very well for, for Jeremy. In the 1970 election, the Liberals were again smashed, losing half of their seats, and he would almost certainly have been deposed as the leader, uh, were it not for the tragic fact that his wife, with whom he'd had a child, was killed in a car crash just 10 days after the election. He spent considerable time grieving for his wife, and by the time he re returned to political life, the Liberals had actually rallied in his absence. Focusing on local issues and with the country in crisis, they seemed to be making significant progress as they entered the 1974 election. This was the election where there was like an, uh, an economic crisis and trade unions were pushing hard on the government. And so the Conservative MP, Edward Heath, went to the electorate with the question, who governs Britain? Meaning the Conservative government or the unions that he had characterised as militants. And the country really was split. Labour won, but with a, without a majority. And Thorpe's Liberals enjoyed a swing of almost 12%. And they won eight seats, which was their best performance since his hero, Lloyd George, had led the party in the 1920s. By this time, Thorpe had remarried to a pianist named Marion Stein, but Scott's marriage had collapsed. It seems like this election result um, points to the ways in which the Liberal Party is kind of kept alive by, you know, when people get, voters in the UK get uh, upset with the other two parties, you know, the, it's like this little escape valve. And then it keeps giving these Liberals um, this hope that they're eventually going to uh, come back and be a governing party again. But then, you know, they just keep, Falling off and falling off and falling off. Yeah, I mean, there are centrist. There are centrist party who win votes from disaffected voters. There, there are obviously are ideological liberals, but they win disaffected voters from both Labour and the Conservatives. But it's a real poison chalice because they're a very much a minority party. They're never going to uh, win a majority in government. So the most they can hope for um, constantly is to win a coalition and then within the coalition argue for or win electoral reform to change the voting system which is a two-party system essentially 
And so, and, and then the poison chalice is that in order to win the electoral reform, they go into coalition and um, they're not very good at politics. So they, they get really fucked over, which is what happened um, in the last coalition is that they, they made this deal for uh, electoral reform. They wanted proportional representation. The deal was that they got an alternative vote system, which nobody wanted. And they got a referendum on an alternative vote, which pleased nobody and they lost it. And in return, um, they had to agree to all sorts of like austerity measures, which really blasted them um, and which they're still suffering from now. Right, because that yeah. was Nick Clegg's big thing was uh, vote for me and I'll abolish tuition fees and then they ended up tripling them. Yeah, um, which I think for many of my generation, I mean, they, I think they'll probably never win those voters back. Yeah, uh, Scott's marriage collapsed at this point. And uh, so in the early 70s, um, for, following the failure of, of his marriage, he actually approached a man called David Steele, who was the liberal chief whip which means in, in the UK, that's the person who's in charge of party discipline uh, within, within each party. And so the Liberals held a sort of secret inquiry into the claims and which he was asked to speak at. And then he ran out of the room in tears following his treatment by the committee. While Thorpe, was asked, uh, Thorpe had asked the Conservative Home Secretary to intervene on his behalf and tell the inquiry that there was no police interest in Thorpe. So, you know, the whole thing is a setup that is almost certain to favour Thorpe because of his class interests. You know, he knows who to, who to ask and, and he feels very comfortable in these surroundings. Whereas, you know, Scott is a, a young man with mental health problems who feels, per, rightly feels extremely persecuted and, um, and is bullied by the, by the committee. And so obviously, like, he runs off. So Scott then went to uh, Thorpe's Tory opponents with the same information, but they also declined to do anything with it. But meanwhile, builders who had been renovating Bessel's office found a briefcase full of letters from Thorpe to Scott, and they passed them to the Daily Mirror, but they didn't publish them either. And then Scott also passed some of his letters to his young doctor, a guy called Dr. Gleedle, who then took them without his consent and sold them to David Holmes, his Liberal Party friend, who took them to Thorpe's solicitor and they were, they were burnt. So, you know, Thorpe was remarkably lucky slash this is the way the system is designed that all these groups of powerful men within the system protected him. You know, that's part of the class game. You know, where would you turn, where would you turn to if you were Scott, the police aren't interested, the opponent, his opposition is interested, his own party isn't interested and papers aren't interested. His doctor steals them off him, you know, so it looked like it was kind of game over for Scott. But what's fascinating here is that it seems like the class, uh, coming together on this class basis um, completely uh, overtakes his homosexuality. This right? is what I mean, you know, like for, yeah. for the ruling class, uh, homosexuality is built into the system and it's discreet and you protect those people and their idiosexual idiosyncrasies and tastes, et cetera, et cetera. But for the, I mean, it's legal at this point, but it's still, they're still protecting him. Whereas for the working class and for people like, um, like Scott, you know, like, the full weight of the law is always brought against them. Um, so following the election, politics in the UK was paralysed. And like we're saying, in the UK system, if you don't have an absolute majority of seats, the ruling party first has the right to try and form a negotiated coalition, which Heath did. Edward Heath went to Thorpe. And Thorpe tried to extract from him, like under Clegg, this promise for electoral reform. But he didn't make the same mistake that Nick Clegg did. And because he couldn't negotiate that, they tried to negotiate this thing called a confidence and supply agreement, which is like an informal coalition. That also didn't work. 
but it was clear that Labour couldn't lead a minority government for very long and Thorpe wouldn't support Labour. So Thorpe then hit upon his political master plan, which was going to revive the Liberals' fortunes. A new election was almost inevitable that year because there was no majority. And so Thorpe tried to push for this policy called One Last Heave that was to win more seats for the Liberals at the next election, which would result in another hung parliament, which would again make King uh, Thorpe the sort of kingmaker and he would win the electoral reform that would end the two-party system forever. And that plan fell apart when uh, Harold Wilson, the Labour leader, managed to achieve a one-seat majority in the elections that October. And in fact, Thorpe's entire life was about to fall apart. Eventually all of this will catch up with you. So that year, Thorpe had written to a very generous Liberal donor who lived in the Bahamas, because, of course, it's the UK, and he asked for a donation to be sent towards his election expenses. And this guy had given very generously to Liberals before. He was a guy called Sir Jack Hayward. And he asked for £10,000 of this £50,000 donation to be sent not to the party in their accounts, but to a friend of his in the Channel Islands, which would make it much harder for the authorities to track it because the Channel Islands is not part of the United Kingdom. That sounds legit. So... Over the past year, um, his friend Holmes, you'll remember him, um, he'd been in touch with a carpet salesman who'd got in touch with a fruit machine salesman who knew an airline pilot whose name was Andrew Newton, and he offered to take Scott out to kill him for the fee of, you guessed it, £10,000. I also think that fruit machine salesman is a euphemism we should use more. <laughs> um, so two weeks after the election in Fruit October machine no- salesman and Eaton fag. Two weeks after the election in October 1975, uh, Andrew Newton um, approached Norman Scott, who was living in Devon, actually in Thorpe's constituency. Um, He met him in a hotel in Porlock, which is a town there, and he told Scott that he'd been hired to protect Scott from an unnamed hitman who was out to get him. Scott believed him, and he got in his car alongside his dog, a great Dane called Rinker. As they were driving over Porlock Hill, Newton's car began to veer across the road and he said he was tired and so Scott offered to drive. It was pouring with rain. As they got out of the car, Newton, who was scared of dogs, pulled out a revolver and shot Rinker in the head. The dog collapsed to the ground. He he then turned and he pointed the revolver at Scott. He said, it's your turn now. He pulled the trigger. Click. It was jammed. Click, click, and nothing. And Scott then understood what was happening. (laughs) Um, Newton Newton panicked and jumped back in his car, leaving Norman Scott in tears in the rain, cradling his dead dog. And that's where he was later found by a passing motorist. I mean, I'm I'm sorry to laugh at a dead dog, um, which is very sad, and also to laugh at a murder attempt, which is not something to to take lightly. But it is kind of funny the gang that couldn't fucking shoot straight. Uh, yeah, yeah. So a police investigation began. Newton was quickly caught, but he kept the conspiracy a secret, claiming Scott was trying to blackmail him um, and that he was just trying to frighten him away, not kill him. But Scott had already been taking his allegations to newspapers, um, but they didn't report the allegations largely because of Britain's restrictive libel laws. However, Oberon Oberon Waugh, who was the son of Evelyn Waugh and a satirist for the, uh, the satirical newspaper in the UK, The Private Eye, um, he lived locally and he loved a good scandal. And he mentioned Thorpe's, quote, sorrow over his friend's dog in his article, in his column. And that was the first hint that the scandal was probably about to break. 
in the new year, Scott was up uh, up in court on a minor charge of uh, social security fraud, ironically, because he didn't have his damn national insurance card. And then in the UK, both courts and parliament are subject to this thing called privilege, meaning that anything that is said there or is reported there to have been said there um, is immune from prosecution under libel laws. So he he finally got his story out through through this social security fraud court case. And the cat was out of the bag and the press was finally on the trail. They, they hunted down Bessel, who was no longer an MP. He was living in the United States. They uncovered the, uncovered the role of Scott's doctor, Dr. Ronald Gleedle. David Steele, the chief whip, who had first raised Scott's claim and he brought it to this internal party inquiry, um, he discovered about the so-called election expenses that were being sent to the Channel Islands. And he told Thorpe he should resign, but Thorpe refused. Bessel then sold his story about covering up their relationship but he didn't actually talk about the plot. And then Newton was sent down for two years for possession of a firearm with intent, but he didn't say anything about the plot and he protected Thorpe. And then in an attempt to face off criticism and, and also the fact that the newspapers looked that they were going to print some of these private letters, Thorpe himself gave two letters to the Sunday Times, which was a, a newspaper that was traditionally um, sent, uh, sympathetic to him. And that included the one that went, bunnies can and will go to France. So although homosexuality had been decriminalised by, at this point, for almost a decade, um, it was still hugely embarrassing for Thorpe, not least because it showed that all his previous denials of a, a relationship, they had been false. And in May 1976, Thorpe finally resigned as leader, although not as an MP, saying that although it was all untrue, it was damaging for the party for him to stay. So it looked like everything had blown over for Thorpe. He was in the clear, but that wasn't the case. Um, there were these two investigative reporters who were actually employed by the former Prime Minister, Harold Wilson, on a, a completely different job. But they tracked down Bessel, who um, in the process confessed to the plot and um, and think, fingered Thorpe, as it were. And then in 1977, um, after Newton had been released and he was fed up of protecting his former employer, he went to the papers and sold his story, saying that he'd been paid £5,000 for the botched hit job. The police reopened the case, and in 1978, Jeremy Thorpe was arrested alongside Holmes, uh, the carpet salesman, John LeMessurier, who's not the guy from Dad's Army, that's a different John LeMessurier, and the fruit machine salesman, George Deakin, and they were all charged with conspiracy to murder Norman Scott. Released on bail, Thorpe still protested his innocence, but it was now a huge national scandal. At the pre-trial committal, a lot of the reporting restrictions were lifted, which guaranteed a, a media circus. And Scott declared that as Thorpe had infected him with the disease of homosexuality, he was now liable for his lifelong care. The trial began at the Old Bailey in London. The defence relied upon the fact that they thought the Crown didn't really have enough evidence to convict, which itself relied upon the, the idea that Thorpe was a, a man of standing and respect, while Scott was an untrustworthy fag, basically. Um, and the defence case was also helped by the fact that it was uncovered that the prosecution witness, Bessel, had accepted £50,000 from a newspaper for his story once the trial was over, but only half of that if Thorpe was acquitted. And most of all, it was helped by the absolutely brazen class-inflected bias shown by the judge. In his summing up, where his, his purpose was to advise the jury regarding the legal arguments that had been made in the case, he described Scott, who, let's not forget, was the defendant. You know, he wasn't the, sorry, he was not the defendant. He was the person who, whose murder was being plotted. He described Scott as, quote, a hysterical, warped personality 
an accomplished sponger and very skillful at exciting and exploiting sympathy. A crook, a fraud, a sponger, a whiner, a parasite. Before adding, adding, adding to that quote, but of course he could still be telling the truth. It is a question of belief. <laughs> he also described Newton, who also wasn't on trial, as, quote, a buffoon, a perjurer, a chump. And um, he described another witness as, quote, the type of man whose taste ran to a cocktail bar in his living room. <laughs> well, you know, is he a fruit salesman with a cocktail bar in his living room? Yeah. Formerly um, a fag, a visitor a, of Cecil Rhodes' enormous hole? It was, a, I mean, it was a complete farce, a, a complete farce of justice. Um, it was the class system in action. Thorpe, who the the judge described as, quote, a national figure with a very distinguished personal record was, of course, acquitted. That very, very week, the notorious British satirist Peter Cook was performing at the the Secret Policeman's Ball, which was a a comedy fundraiser performance for Amnesty International. And he wrote a comedy comedy sketch based upon Justice Cantley's summing up, which is um, now known as Entirely a Matter for You, which ran, quote, we have been forced to listen to the pitiful whining of Mr. Norma St. John Scott, a scrounger, parasite, pervert, a worm, a self-confessed player of the pink oboe, a man or woman a who by his... self-confessed player of the pink oboe? <laughs> a man or, or woman who by his or her own admission chews pillows. It would be hard to imagine, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, a more discredited and embittered man, a more unreliable witness upon whose testimony to convict a man who you may rightly think should have been prime minister of his country or president of the world. So this, this, uh, this sketch, this joke, which has become really famous since, is probably Peter Cook's best, best um, comedy routine. Uh, that's pretty much as close as, as justice uh, that either Jeremy Thorpe or Norman Scott would get. Even it was a, as it was happening, like as this... As this um, this sketch shows, you know, even even while it was going on, people knew it was clearly a farce, a charade, a miscarriage of justice. But um, but his career as a politician was over, having lost his seat in the 1979 general election that swept Margaret Thatcher to power. The same year, he was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, and by the mid 1980s, um, he was no longer even taking on these sort of honorary roles and chairmanships of various organisations that he was being offered. Yet his reputation among liberals largely survived intact. When the Liberal Party merged with the Social Democratic Party, which itself... I'm sorry, he tried to murder someone and his reputation among liberals largely remained intact? Yeah. Well, I guess George W. Bush murdered a million Iraqis and his reputation among liberals has never been better, so... I mean, he was acquitted, yeah. And and when the Liberal Party then merged with the Social Democratic Party, which was a um, a splinter party from the right of the Labour Party um, in the 80s, in a, a very similar situation to sort of what was happening uh, over the last couple of years in the UK with, with Corbyn. He was actually offered the honorary presidency of his local Lib Dem association, which he took. And in 1997, he appeared at the Lib Dem annual conference where he received a standing ovation. But I think his attitudes towards homosexuality changed. I think his reputation actually did continue to suffer. And he was very keen, obviously, to ensure that the case wasn't re-examined. I mean, like, we must obviously... He's, de- he's dead now, so so it's not libelous, but we must um, obviously say that he was acquitted in a court of law. But that's become more complicated as I go on. But yeah, as um, he was very he was very keen to sort of stop the case being re-examined, and he even threatened legal action against uh, the BBC as late as two thousand and nine, uh, when they began to make a drama about the case, which starred uh, Rupert Everett, which sadly was never made because I think he would be an excellent uh, Jeremy Thorpe. 
and uh, his his actually pretty bad memoirs in 1999. Um, they just skirt over the, the case very quickly, and he continues to, to deny. He continued in it to deny that he even had a relationship with Scott, preferring to focus on other things like his lifelong affinity for wearing hats, which he goes into in more depth than he goes into Scott. Anyway. Um, increasingly infirm with Parkinson's, he was nursed by his wife until her death in 2014, and then he, he died nine months after. The Lib Dem leader and deputy prime minister in the Tory Lib Dem coalition paid tribute to him, uh, Nick Clegg, saying, Jeremy Thorpe's leadership and resolve were the driving force that continued the liberal revival that began under Joe Grimmond. Yet later that year, a firearms collector called Dennis Megan came forward to claim that he'd been offered £13,000 to, uh, to kill Scott. And that although he'd refused, he'd been the one who'd actually provided Newton with the gun. And he confessed to the police, but the case, the case remains closed. After Thorpe's death, Norman Scott returned from Ireland and is still alive and residing in Devon. Thank you so much to all of you for listening to our show. We've now been downloaded more than 325,000 times, which is incredible. And we're so grateful for all of your support. And especially thanks to our Patreon listeners, without your help, it really wouldn't be possible. It really wouldn't be. Um, and so we know you all know this, but we want to let you know that at our website, badgazepod.com, you can find a few very important things. One, you can find a link to our Patreon where you can support the show. Uh, second, you can find uh, some very beautiful t-shirts for sale. I'm wearing mine now, Hugh. Is it not lovely? Very nice. Uh, and you can also find, of course, an archive of all of our past episodes. Uh, we don't work with a media company. We don't put anything behind a paywall. We just rely on people who think that we're doing good work and who enjoy the show to uh, back that up with some support. And so we're really grateful to all of you who do. And we also understand that if you don't want to, times are tough. So you can also just completely keep listening. But uh, if you do want to support us, that's at badgazepod.com. So thank you so much for telling us that story, Hugh. And I think the question in all of our minds is, did he do it? Well, there is, there is an interesting sort of postscript to this. Um, after the trial, one of the jurors approached the Guardian newspaper to explain what happened uh, in the jury. All 12 jurors had agreed that Thorpe was guilty of incitement to threaten, but because he wasn't charged with that crime, they couldn't convict him of that crime. Uh, and they were they were very angry about this because instead, obviously, he was charged with both conspiracy and incitement to murder. But because of Bessel's newspaper deal, they felt they couldn't convict them based on that evidence alone. Um, so they thought the the jury thought that he did it, but they didn't think that that they could convict because of this thing. And they were angry that they couldn't convict him of a lesser charge that he they clearly thought he was guilty of, which was conspiracy. Uh, sorry, guilty of incitement to threaten and conspiracy. Um, and according to Jeffrey Robinson, who is an eminent QC and defense barrister in a, a number of high profile cases around the time, um, the jurors wanted to highlight the ineptitude of the director of public prosecutions and to force parliament to bring in laws to prevent media deals like Bessel's. Um, and the Guardian actually declined to publish this, uh, this juror's account, but they did send it to another British magazine called The New Statesman. And Robertson was at the time the New Statesman's lawyer, and he advised that they published. And in response, the Thatcher government prosecuted the New Statesman for contempt of court, um, of which they were acquitted. But as a result, the government then rushed through a new law, a new contempt of court act, 
which criminalised jurors and journalists who divulge what happens in jury deliberations, which effectively silences certain types of whistleblowers. So that's this big legal change as a result of the case. And it really does suggest that the jury themselves did regard Thorpe guilty of at least conspiracy to, uh, uh, to threaten, and that their reason to acquit was based more around press interference and um, the inability to to uh, sentence him on a lesser charge because of the failure of the direct repugnant prosecutions rather than any sort of case that Thorpe had made that, um, that he hadn't done it. And actually Thorpe and the rest of the witnesses refused to, uh, to appear in the witness box, which is obviously their legal right, but um, not necessarily a good look in such a situation. Yeah, I mean, it just seems like for the members of these social groups, consequences don't exist. I mean, you can, in a very homophobic time, be um, a somewhat sort of known to be gay guy and still be a popular and effective political figure. And then the only thing that disrupts that is when you allegedly conspire to have your inconvenient ex-boyfriend knocked off. And, and even that, I mean, it maybe knocks you out of politics, but it doesn't put you behind bars. Yeah, and it's, it's a... Um it's perhaps a question that is sort of underlying some of the gay rights movement at the time, which is that um, certain types of homosexuality are too disruptive for the social order and certain types aren't. Um, Jeremy Thorpe's type of, of homosexuality was not disruptive to the social order and therefore the social order could tolerate not just his homosexuality, but protect him repeatedly um, from him being outed from it or then potentially in the end, at least the intention to like threaten uh, in a terrifying way this this poor guy, whereas Scott's uh, homosexuality was obviously was a threat to the social order, and also a lot of people at the time who wanted to lead different, more visible, more public lives as homosexuals were were a huge threat, and and um, uh, that's like I think like an interesting thing that underpins or like complicates the ideas just of, of the idea of rights, you know, like homosexuality existing in in a liberal democracy like the UK is not simply a matter of balanced rights or it's to do with the way that people are homosexual in public, which is a cultural issue and and is why I, I would say one of the reasons ostensibly why the the, the 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 gay movement that came out of the gay liberation front, although it dropped a lot of its more radical aspects, the aspect of visibility and coming out was the thing that changed society in a way that perhaps weren't the effect of earlier gay, gay rights organizations which were based around this much more discreet thing because because the later gay rights movements really acknowledged the social and cultural aspects of homosexuality as, as disruptive it kind of in a way i mean to go back to our last episode it kind of reminds me of the way in which i mean they're obviously very different figures in very different contexts but the way in which liberace is kind of a gay man, right? It's like a, it's a very, even maybe more visible than Thorpe, uh, but he finds a way to make it completely non-disruptive. And it's precisely that sort of secret keeping um, that, that keeps it on that, on that non-disruptive side. You can have an incredibly uh, flamboyant over the top performance of queerness, but um, the secrecy stops it from disrupting anything. Yeah. And if it's not embodied, like the thing they both shared, which is that they're, the, there wasn't. There was like this element of like mm, the, the, the 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 general public could perhaps um, at a stretch. Well, in in, in Thorpe's case, that it was the uh, what's his name, Chief Constable Bacon was his name. Uh, he he 
said that this is an open secret. So it didn't stop him being elected, but it'll, of course, be a huge difference. I mean, it was another, when was he first elected? Like in 19, uh, early 1950s, it would be another, sorry, late 1950s, it would be another, what, like 20 or 30 years before an openly gay person was elected. So Hugh, I think what's left is the question. Jeremy Thorpe, bad gay or not bad gay? Yeah, I think I think bad gay. I mean, um, sometimes with people in, in this situation, you'll say they're pushed one way or the other by social circumstances and make strange decisions based upon that. But I think I think he was a pretty ruthless political operator who was prepared to uh, treat other gay men, especially his lovers, extremely badly if they in any way interrupted his ambitions in life. And I think maybe one of the reasons why he retains his, um, why, why he's not necessarily seen, he's seen as more, as a, more of a comic figure than a really malicious figure is, um, is partly because of homophobia, of course, like gays are, are very fr- infrequently regarded as threatening unless they actually do kill somebody, but also um, because he's a liberal. I think if he was, uh, a conservative, it would, he, he'd probably have a worse reputation, and I think I don't I don't know how he'd be perceived if he was Labour, but probably yeah, probably a pretty bad bad reputation as well. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense to me, and and uh, I think one of the things you made really clear is how that particular kind of position as a liberal uh, protects him both from the kind of social consequences that are afforded to. Uh, working class driven or liberationary political movements in the UK, uh, but also um, protects him from the kind of general hate that people correctly have for Tories because they're scum. Yeah, I mean, it just just strikes me as strange, like having read this story, that there is essentially a sort of political plot to to murder somebody who threatens them in, in the UK, allegedly, in the UK, in the 1970s, and it's still remembered as something of a campy joke. Yeah, and that, and the fact that he is then basically completely welcomed back into political life, life afterwards yeah. in some ways is, is, is really, really strange. Yeah. So, Hugh, if people wanted to find out more about Jeremy Thorpe, what are some of the sources that you use to uh, research this episode? Well, there's, of course, his, his, his own memoir, In My Own Time, which is um, extremely interesting if you uh, care about his opinion on hat wearers and overcoats and things like this. Not so good if you're looking for a sort of critical, honest look at the uh, ace in general. Um, so instead, I'd suggest um, a book, uh, his biography called Jeremy Thorpe uh, by Michael Block, which is um, extremely thorough and interesting and um, well-researched and is a, a very good read. Um, and there's also a book which I consulted a bit called Rinkergate, The Rise and Fall of Jeremy Thorpe by Simon Freeman and Barry Penrose. And last of all, um, a novelization of the affair that was published after Thorpe's death by um, an author called John Preston, which is called A Very English Scandal, and which was finally made into a BBC miniseries of the same name in 2018, starring Hugh Grant as Jeremy Thorpe and uh, the angelic Ben Wishaw as Norman Scott. Um, which is uh, very entertaining and well worth a watch and uh, quite rigorous about the actual, actual case. Well, great. Thanks so much. You can follow me on Twitter at Ben Writes Things. 
And you can follow me at Hugh Lemmy. And you can follow the show at Bad Gaze Pod and visit our website, badgazepod.com, for a link to our Patreon, for t-shirts, and for an episode archive. See you next week. Bye. Bye. Bad. 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 Bad.